Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now, or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again, wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hello friends. I want to share with you today a project that I've been working on for the past year that I knew upon the inception of it, the conception of it, that it is my divine assignment. And I had decided to put it on the back burner a couple of months ago. I was going to launch it a couple of months ago. I was going to put it on the back burner to continue to focus on my personal healing and my personal life. And given the headlines in the news right now about the fact that Roe v. Wade is in jeopardy here in the U.S., I realized that the time for me to come forward with this is now. So I'm listening to that, and I invite you to settle in and listen to my story and to see how you can get involved with this divine assignment that I am taking on at this time in history with many others. A couple of things, this story is, um, it's intense, it's emotional, and I might get emotional as I, as I read it. I published this over on my website, thewayofthehappywoman.com. And my voice feels more shaky than usual because it's, um, yeah, it's the night before we're going to reveal this. 
and I'm staying up late past my bedtime to record this. And um, there are some, there's some adult language in this. And so if you have little ones around and this is an adult topic, put in your earbuds or just listen to it at a later time. All right. Live your life from truth and you will survive everything, everything, even death. Oprah Winfrey. The woman who survives intact and happy must be at once tender and tough. She must have convinced herself that she, her values, and her choices are important. Maya Angelou. If you haven't found a cause worth dying for, you don't have a life worth living. Martin Luther King Jr. Katabas. It's a Greek word that means a blow that sets your life spinning in an entirely new direction. One year ago, last April, my katabas struck. As my black ballet flats touched down onto the blue carpet of the two-story building, climbing one stair at a time, my mother and younger sister behind me, one of my girlfriends in front of me, I told myself, I can stop this. I can turn around right now. But I knew whether I kept moving forward or turned back, there was no escaping the katabas. It had come for me, no matter what. Keep going, mom. You're doing the right thing, my son encouraged. We're in this together. So I kept walking up the stairs, so I didn't turn back. Exactly two weeks earlier, I was leading a women's yoga and meditation teacher training at a retreat center just outside of Calistoga, California. At five o'clock, I finished teaching day two of seven. I headed out of the practice hall into the late afternoon mist and drizzle and started walking back to the teacher's cottage where I was staying. 22 women from as far away as Australia had flown in for the training. Under the best of circumstances, leading a week-long event demands my full energy and focus. Even more so at that particular training. For I was test driving a new curriculum and didn't have the luxury of tried and true lesson plans to lean on. Plus, I had just entered the second trimester of my first pregnancy which I had announced publicly five days earlier. After suffering from debilitating round-the-clock nausea throughout my first trimester, I was starting to feel a little bit better. Still, I was only operating at around 50% of my usual capacity. On top of that, I had moved into a new home with my then-partner Jack and his child only a few days earlier. I felt tired and stretched thinner than I ever had in my life. Simultaneously, I felt like I was rounding a corner. After the training, I would return to Boulder and settle into my new home, family and life. For the first time, I could start enjoying my pregnancy. I could finally celebrate the blessings I'd been calling in so fervently for so long. When I arrived at my cottage, I slipped my feet out of my flip-flops, leaving them on the rain-soaked deck. Then I opened the screen door 
and stepped inside. Laying my bag on the red love seat in the sitting area, I took my iPhone out of my bag and switched it out of airplane mode so I could communicate with my on-site teaching assistant. That's when I saw it. An iMessage from my business manager. It read, There's a sensitive email that came in today. I know you're teaching, but you're going to want to take a look at it right away. XO. Shit. My intestines nodded. A slick layer of sweat coated my palms. She never texts me. She knows I stay off email when I'm teaching. This must be really bad. I sat down on the love seat, pulled my computer off the side table and onto my lap, flipped open the screen and heart racing logged into my Gmail. The email was at the top of my inbox. The subject line read, personal message for Sarah about Jack. Fuck. I opened the email forwarded to me by my customer care assistant from our company inbox. At the top, she wrote, Sarah, this came in today and I wanted to get it to you right away. Please let us know if there's anything we can do to support you. Fuck, fuck, fuck. My eyes raced over her words and down to the forwarded email. Dear Sarah, we've never met, but when I saw the recent article you wrote about your pregnancy, I knew I had to reach out to you. I've been sexually involved with Jack since last September. I had no idea that he was with you. I have evidence if you want it. He's the true definition of a misogynist. Amanda Stevens. Inside, humiliation scorched me. Hands trembling and heart pounding, I grabbed my purse and the keys to my rental car. I jumped in the car, drove past the women who were absorbed in a walking meditation on the front lawn, and sped out the front gate onto the wet, windy road to town. The voice inside of me said, this is another one of those moments. Your life won't ever be what it was 15 minutes ago. You are forever changed. I knew exactly what that voice meant. I had just had one of those rug pulled out from underneath me, life-shattering moments only 15 months earlier. I had just faced my biggest fears and deepest pain. I thought I was finally coming through to the other side. How could this be happening to me again so soon? Only this time I knew it was worse, far worse. I looked down at my belly. Now it wasn't just me. It was me and my baby. I put in my earbuds and called Jack. Hey, babe, he exclaimed. How's California? I got an email today from Amanda Stevens. I cut in, my voice sharp like a dart. It's not true. I promise you it's not true. Jack replied calmly, his words so smooth and sure, luring me towards him. Sarah, listen to me. It's not true. His child, whom he had just picked up at school, was in the car. Jack told me he'd call me back once they got home. Do you swear on your child's life that it's not true, I implored? Yes, he answered before hanging up. I kept driving. A buzz with shock, Mother Nature's morphine. My body grew numb while my mind raced. I needed to talk. 
to someone, anyone. I called my former spiritual teacher. I called my mom. I left a voicemail for my on-site assistant, Liz, who is also a close friend, telling her what happened. She texted me right back, saying she could meet me in my cottage in 10 minutes. So I pulled over to the side of the road, turned the car around, and headed back. Once inside on the red love seat with Liz beside me, I texted Amanda, requesting her evidence. Amanda texted right back. She said she didn't feel comfortable sharing it anymore. Since children were involved, she didn't want to get tangled in any legal battles. He must have just called her. How about FaceTime? I texted back. Then I can still see the evidence without leaving a record. I need to know who's telling the truth here. We FaceTimed a couple of hours later, and I saw everything I needed to. Jack was, in fact, the one who was lying. Amanda had no idea I even existed, much less that I was pregnant, until she saw a picture of me on Jack's Facebook page, googled my name, and saw my recent blog post announcing my pregnancy. I wasn't going to say anything, Amanda admitted, but when I saw you were pregnant, I felt you deserved to know. When we hung up, I knew there was no point in calling Jack back. Everything that came out of his mouth was a lie. Several weeks earlier, I almost had an abortion. It was a cold February night and I couldn't sleep. Since Jack and I hadn't yet moved into our new home, we were both sleeping in my apartment. Instead of tossing and turning and keeping him up, I made a bed for myself on the couch in the living room. Hours passed couldn't fall asleep there either. Alertness hummed through my whole body, and it was a familiar hum. I had had it sometimes during sleepless nights with my former fiancé, Matt, where I'd stare wide-eyed into the blackness of the bedroom, my heart pounding, my body screaming, something is very wrong here, although there was nothing specific I could point to as a source of my uneasiness. I must be overly tired, anxious, stressed. Nearly one year prior to that sleepless night on the couch, my and Matt's five-year relationship ended very explosively and very publicly. Evidence had leaked amongst his friends that he was cheating on me. The next day, Matt broke the news to me. For a couple of years, starting before we got engaged, Matt had been sleeping with multiple women, one of whom was a friend and freelancer with my company, The Way of the Happy Woman. Even though Matt promised me he had disclosed the full truth at the time we separated, in the years since then, more women have come forward. Their confessions shown more light on my time with Matt, as well as the fact that he had misrepresented himself to me from the very start. I still don't have a coherent narrative for that chapter of my life. Upon receiving Matt's news, I was completely blindsided. We had always had an agreement that if either one of us ever wanted to be with someone else, we would talk about it and decide on a course of action together. I have my own dark side, am certainly not perfect, and like any relationship, Matt and I had our challenges. But it never once crossed my mind that he was cheating on me. I'd heard of that happening to other women, I'd seen it in movies, but I never thought it could happen to me. 
while that will probably always remain the biggest shock of my life, and still trying to wrap my head around it, I now recognize that a very subtle part of me did know what was happening, my subconscious. It was the part of me that spoke in nightmares, which Matt dismissed. It was the part that he led me to believe was eye-rollingly jealous, insecure, selfish, and always the one to blame. That part was buried under hundreds, if not thousands, of Matt's lies, lies that put my mind and gut at war with one another, lies that made me question my very sanity. I now know that there's a psychological term for this, gaslighting, a covert manipulation technique that creates cognitive dissonance By telling a person that her experience of reality is wrong, gaslighting is one of the most damaging and insidious forms of emotional and psychological abuse there is. When I began putting the pieces together, all the strange occurrences from my time with Matt started to make sense. When we first met, I felt bright, healthy, engaged with the world, and confident. By the time we separated, I felt dimmed down and drained. I hardly recognized myself. I was always exhausted. I hid behind black sunglasses for a few years. I stopped socializing because I felt so unsafe going out with Matt. My hair started falling out, and I developed mysterious illnesses, including, towards the end, type 2 diabetes. Rebuilding my health is still my top priority. Meanwhile, I was juicing, practicing yoga, meditating, eating a paleo and sugar-free diet, exercising, journaling, going to therapy, seeing functional medicine doctors, sleeping a lot, getting acupuncture, taking all the right supplements. You get the idea. No matter how much time and money I invested in myself, my health only got worse. Neither I nor anyone I knew thought to look at the energetics of my home environment or relationship as key contributors to to my distress. I thought it was just me. Likewise, despite my significant investments in our relationship, that too continued to deteriorate. I viewed my relationship with Matt as a primary part of my spiritual path, so I was willing to stay in the fire in order to learn and grow through our union. Matt and I were in couples therapy for two years with one of the most sought-after therapists in Boulder. The therapist never once caught a whiff of what was really going on, and our couples therapy only spawned more conflict. After the truth came out, I started working with both my mentor and therapist more intensively. When I shared with them the full picture of what had happened, they both said the exact same thing. That's classic access to Narcissistic Personality Disorder. For several months after my and Matt's separation, I read books, took online courses, and attended weekly therapy sessions to help me heal from this dynamic. My study showed me that everything I had just lived, including how I felt unrecognizable to myself by the end of the relationship, was textbook for a person who suffers from narcissistic abuse. Knowing full well that there are no victims, only volunteers, I was committed to learning from my mistakes and taking 100% responsibility for my life. I was the one who chose Matt as a partner. I was the one who mismanaged my energy. I was the one with weak boundaries. I was the one who betrayed and abandoned myself. 
I was the one who gave my power away. I was the one who stayed. Determined to move on with my life and become the kind of woman who would never even be with a man like that, I devoted myself to creating a new life. I envisioned my future partner and a family rooted in integrity, security, and well-being. Every day I worked to become the woman I would need to be to live that life. My support team celebrated how well I was doing. They shared how impressed they were with my progress. I too was proud of how far I felt I had come. My only frame of reference, however, was past breakups. My separation from Matt was so much more than just a breakup. The cognitive dissonance and PTSD needed more support than I realized. Old wounds of abandonment, shame, humiliation, and worthlessness were right at the surface. And my dominant emotional state was fear, bordering on paranoia, a future betrayal. In light of all this, I had wished I had taken more time to heal and learn to trust myself again before I started dating. When these factors are present, I know it's very common for women to enter into yet another relationship with a narcissist. But I felt I had already lost enough time with Matt. I was determined not to allow my past to prevent me from living the life I wanted. In early August, six months after Matt and I separated, I met Jack. I felt instant chemistry with him and it was game on after our first date. With Jack, I approached the dating process with more maturity and scrutiny than I ever had before. I vetted him by bringing him around friends and family early on. I met with mutual acquaintances to ask them about him. I even ran a criminal background check on him. I was upfront with Jack about my broken engagement and desires for marriage, family, and monogamy. Since Matt's dishonesty robbed me of the ability to make emotionally mature decisions for my life and to have a genuine voice in our relationship, I was committed to enforcing my needs and boundaries going forward. Jack's life vision mirrored mine. With his divorce finalized several months earlier, he shared his conviction to have a new beginning. Within our first months together, he told me he wanted to marry me and have a family together. After a rough stretch of loneliness and grief, Jack's fun-loving nature made me smile, laugh, and feel sexy and beautiful in ways I hadn't in years. His effusive affection felt like the sun was shining on me again and that my prayers had been answered. I continued speaking up with Jack about things that, in the past, I would have ignored because I wanted to give my partner the benefit of the doubt. I spoke up about red flags, even yellow ones, Jack always had a very logical, plausible explanation to my concerns. But now I know, never give these individuals the benefit of the doubt. Never give them a second chance. Only believe their actions, not their words. While driving me home from one of our early dates, I told Jack that he reminded me a lot of Matt and that that scared me. All the books that I had read warned me that the qualities they had in common were classic markers the dangerous man. Jack began to cry and had to pull over to the side of the highway. He shared how hurt he was that I would even think something like that. He vowed to help me heal from my past so I could learn to trust again. 
On another car ride, he grabbed my right index finger, pressed it into the home button on his iPhone, and gave me full access to his phone. Whenever I started to feel anxious, he said, I could look through it. I know time is the only non-renewable resource, Jack told me, and I know you lost years of your life with Matt. I'll never waste your time, and I promise you only a wholehearted, adventurous life. We're going to be epic. Then there I was, several weeks pregnant with Jack's child, sleepless on the couch in the middle of the night. I'd gotten what I'd been envisioning, a healthy baby in my belly, a sexy man in my bed, yet it didn't feel right. My subconscious mind, which is always more accessible in the middle of the night, was trying to get my attention. I need to see his phone again, I thought as I leapt off the couch. He had his phone with him in the bedroom. I couldn't sneak it away from him. I couldn't wake him up to ask to see it either. During our early months together, Jack didn't mind if I woke him up when I felt uneasy about being with him. He was happy to help me on my healing journey, he said. Now he just got annoyed. You're carrying my child. When are you going to finally trust me? This is getting old, Sarah. So I went into my office. He had his own account on my iMac, but I didn't know the password. I looked down. His child's iPad was plugged in on the floor. I do know the password to that. I looked through the iMessages, blank. The FaceTime recents, just numbers, no names. Then I looked through the browser history. A series of Tinder flame windows, Maria 17, Tanya 56, and on the list went. I tried to open each profile, but needed a password. What the fuck? I Googled Tinder flame, trying to figure out what it even was. Then I wondered what he was still doing on Tinder in the first place. We had met on an online dating app, and once we agreed to become exclusive, we both deleted our profiles, or so I thought. Now it was 4 a.m. I sent an SOX text to my girlfriend, Clark, who is often up early. Even though I hadn't slept that night, the lantern of clarity began to shine through my body. While I'd been praying for a baby and had been in deep communication with the soul of a child for years, I didn't feel excited when I found out I was pregnant. Instead, I felt disbelief, tinged with terror. Once I don't get my period and the pregnancy is confirmed, I assumed myself, I assured myself, I will feel excited. Then, once I go to the doctor and the pregnancy is officially confirmed, I would feel excited. Then, once my nausea passes, once I tell my family, once I announce it to the public, but the excitement never came. From the beginning, I kept teetering back and forth between continuing on with the pregnancy and terminating it. And that night, the evidence I found tipped the scale towards termination. Clark was, in fact, awake. She called right after she got my text. After 10 minutes of whispering back and forth in the dark, I confirmed that I was going to meet with a counselor at the Women's Health Center that afternoon to make an appointment to get an abortion. 
I had her number for we'd, we'd already played voicemail tag when I first found out I was pregnant. When Jack woke up a few hours later, I confronted him about what I had found. We went in circles about it for an hour. His excuse was plausible, but I still ordered him to pack up his things and leave. My pre-dawn clarity started to evaporate with the daylight. He seemed both icy and devastated. After he drove away, I began to feel guilty for taking such extreme action. Am I being unreasonable? Somehow I ended up feeling like I was the one who had done something wrong. As an outsider, I had always been able to spot dynamics like this from a mile away. In fact, I've mentored women to leave similar situations. But being inside one was an entirely different experience. It felt like being under a spell. Shortly after that, I drove to meet with the abortion counselor, Skylar. I don't remember what she looked like, but I do remember how she felt. Sturdy and smooth like a stone at the bottom of a stream bed. We talked about my relationship with Jack why I wanted an abortion, and what the process would be like. As Skylar explained the difference between a medical and surgical abortion, the room started spinning. My nausea returned in full force, and I asked her to pause so I could eat a few saltines and regroup. Abortion had always scared me. I secretly felt relieved that, unlike most of my friends, I had never needed to have one. It's intense, I know. Skylar soothed. I actually think the easier option is a surgical abortion. I agreed. And since they only perform surgical abortions on Friday mornings, we scheduled it for that week, three days away. At that time, only a few people knew I was pregnant. My mom, my former spiritual teacher, and my closest girlfriends. On my drive home from meeting with Skylar, I called my spiritual teacher. I still wasn't positive I wanted an abortion, but at least I wanted to get it scheduled. Then I had three days to do some serious soul searching. Skylar told me that I literally had up until the very last minute to change my mind. Having always had a very strong connection with Mother Mary, my teacher encouraged me to find a chapel where I could feel her presence and pray. During those few days, I went to a small chapel each day, kneeled, prayed, and cried. With my nausea and all the pregnancy hormones flooding my body, I had a hard time feeling myself and my inner guidance in the ways that I'd always been used to. My usual roads into myself were closed. I quite literally couldn't feel my center. How am I supposed to make the biggest decision of my life when I don't even feel like myself? That Thursday, as I was driving home from the chapel, my phone rang. It was the receptionist at the abortion clinic. This is very unusual. We're so sorry to do this, she said, but we need to reschedule your appointment. The doctor had her own medical emergency and we need to postpone your appointment to next Friday. I wasn't sure whether that was a sign to keep the baby or simply the gift of more time to reach clarity. The following week, I was going to be 10 weeks, nearing the point when I wasn't comfortable getting an abortion That was when I could get the blood work drawn for genetic testing and find out the sex of my baby. How could I get an abortion once I knew all that? 
When I got home, I called a local shamanic healer whom I trusted and had worked with at other major crossroads. I told her my situation and she agreed to see me that Saturday morning. Up until my appointment, she encouraged me to let myself fall apart. Don't be afraid to get really messy, she advised. Play out every possible outcome in your mind, having the baby, having an abortion, raising the baby on your own, raising your baby with other single moms, raising the baby with your partner. Notice how each one of those scenarios feels in your body. It's important that you don't try to find the answer. Just let yourself be in the muck, she said. You're already a mother. These are the kinds of decisions that only mothers can make. Trust that you're on a journey with the mother goddess that is unique to you and that she is guiding you. I cleared my calendar for the next few days to devote myself fully to the process. Maybe because of the nausea, maybe because of the cold that forced me back into bed that day, I still couldn't feel a direct connection to my inner guidance or the soul of my baby. Despite my attempts, I wasn't picking up a clear signal. If I got an abortion without that, I didn't think I could live with myself afterwards. On Saturday, after my session with the shaman, I sat with her drinking tea and talking about our insights. I decided I wanted to keep going. I decided to trust that my prayers had been answered. I decided to believe that my future could be different from my past. I decided to keep the baby. The shaman said that she felt all of my spirit guides giving me the green light and that while the red carpet beneath me currently felt threadbare, it was going to get plumper and fuller very soon. She also confirmed what I felt, that the baby's soul wasn't yet in its body. It knows you've been undecided, she said, so it hasn't fully come in. That's why you haven't been able to connect with it. Last, she advised me to not put Jack's name on the birth certificate and to get a legal document between the two of us stating that I had full custody. I've advised, I've advised other women to do this in the past, she said. Hopefully you won't end up needing it, but those that did were grateful they had it. I agreed to follow her advice. By then, I had very little faith in the potential for long-term success in my and Jack's relationship. It was becoming clear to me that he was going to slip at some point, and it was just a matter of when. I thought we could make it work, at least for the first few years of our baby's life when we would need all hands on deck. A few days later, I went to the hospital to have my blood drawn. If it's a girl, I thought, then I know for sure this is my child, for I had been connecting to the soul of a girl for the past 15 years. When the doctor's office called the following week, they shared that all the genetic tests had come back clear. Phew. Then, congratulations, it's a boy. Several weeks later, back in Calistoga, we were on day three of the training. I was able to channel my intensity into leading the twice daily sessions. During breaks, I stayed in my cottage gathering information. I knew I had two choices get full legal custody and raise the baby on my own or terminate the pregnancy. I emailed my family to fill them in on what was happening. I made an appointment to meet with my mentor, a doctor, and a family lawyer when I got home. I spoke to a traditional Chinese medicine doctor who had supported other women through second trimester abortions 
and in getting pregnant again afterward. I researched possible complications with fertility in future pregnancies if I chose termination. I told Jack our relationship was over and asked him to stay elsewhere when I came home. Then I asked him for 100% custody of the baby. With shock and disgust, he replied, absolutely not. Paternity rights in Colorado are some of the most progressive in the country. Courts don't care about character disorders or infidelity. Unless there's concrete evidence of physical or drug abuse, a father gets a minimum of 50% custody. I learned that through witnessing Jack's ex-wife trying to get full custody of their child. I'd also learned firsthand through watching Jack's exchanges with his ex-wife how challenging it was for them to co-parent their young child together. Could I convince him to give me full custody? If I have a mediator at help, Jack will dupe them too. Should I give him an ultimatum? Full custody or I'm getting an abortion? Then he won't leave me alone when I get home. Even if he says he'll give me full custody, I can't believe him. If I don't get custody, my child will be raised by other women 50% of the time. Would I need to move to Chicago to get help from my family? Can I even leave Colorado if I can't get full custody? I told myself I didn't need to decide anything until I returned to Boulder the following week. I woke up on the last day of the training, a sunny Sunday morning, feeling both relief and dread. Relief because I would soon no longer be holding space for others and could turn my attention fully to me and my baby. Dread because I knew that whatever my final choice ended up being, unimaginable difficulty loomed before me. After posing with a fake smile for the final group photo, I hugged women goodbye, graciously receiving their baby gifts and congratulatory well wishes. Inside, I suffocated a raging, restless howl. Since my flight wasn't until that evening, I stopped in San Francisco to visit with my friend, Larissa, on the way to the airport. Larissa and her husband had supported me through my betrayal and breakup the previous winter and were giddy with excitement over my new partnership and pregnancy. To prevent them from welcoming me with their new baby exuberance, I texted Larissa en route. Something has happened with my pregnancy. Please don't greet me with congratulations. I'll share more with you when I see you. After I arrived, Larissa and I sat down on her sage green couch, steaming cups of herbal chai on the coffee table beside us. Then I filled her in. Tears glossed over her blue eyes and she reached over to hold my hands. 20 years my senior, Larissa has always been both a sister and a maternal figure in my life. I always value her wisdom. It's like your own Sophie's choice, she sighed. Have you seen that movie? Uh-uh, I uttered, shaking my head back and forth. It stars Meryl Streep. She plays a Holocaust survivor, Larissa continued. The night she arrived at Auschwitz with her two children, a Nazi officer forced her to choose life for one child and death for the other. It's an impossibly difficult choice between two unbearable options, a no-win situation, she finished. Larissa told me of three women she knew who had had second trimester abortions. Two of them, she said, had connected with the souls of their children in order to make their decisions. The third did not. The latter ended up regretting her decision. The two former reconceived and gave birth to their aborted children when the time was right to bring them into the world. 
Still safely inside the matter-of-fact, emotionless zone of shock, I told Larissa that I hadn't yet been able to connect with my son. While I was initially surprised that I'm not having a girl, I confessed, now I'm genuinely really happy to be having a boy. I continued, but it's so weird. I feel deeply connected to my sister's children when they were in the womb. I've led prenatal yoga teacher trainings around the world, guiding women to connect with the souls of their children. Now my own child is a complete mystery to me. Honestly, he feels like a stranger. Still, the stories from other women that Larissa shared enforced my conviction that I would not, I could not make a decision until I connected with my son. Several hours later, just after midnight, I returned to Maya and Jack's new home in Boulder. I walked in to find the living room littered with U-Haul boxes and crumpled newspaper when I had left, fully organized and arranged. My heart ached for the sanctuary I had just moved out of. The new living room felt like it belonged to a stranger, save my dog Sadie, who leapt from her bed in the corner to greet me with whimpers and wiggles. Rolling my suitcase across the dark wooden floorboards, I set them at the foot of the stairs and headed into the kitchen for a glass of water. Swallowing my first gulp, I felt fatigue sting my eyes. My bare feet throbbed on the white tiles beneath them. I looked around again and felt all the effort it had taken to actualize this new home, now so ordered, so settled. Feelings of nostalgia and doubt started to swell inside me. Maybe things aren't really as bad as I think. Maybe there's a way we can make this work. Then I looked down. On the gray and white speckled granite countertop sat Jack's black iPad, along with a handwritten note. Welcome home. Press play on the iPad to watch a video tour to help you find everything. My tiredness lifted as my heart started racing. I willed myself not to watch the video, for I'd witnessed the power of Jack's silver tongue. Instead, my intuition guided me to swipe my finger across the screen from right to left, bypassing the video and flipping over to the second page of the home screen to the iMessage icon. There, I saw a list of messages, some with just phone numbers, a couple with names of women he'd been sexting with over the past few years, some while I'd been asleep in the other room. The texts were even more disturbing than what Amanda had shared. One was with a married woman in Boulder, whom he invited to our new home for wine and lingerie while I was in California. Another was with a woman he had picked up in my car the night that he had dropped me off at the airport. There must have been a tech glitch when syncing his phone. The rest of the iPad had been wiped completely clean. On a hunt, I looked through the app purchase history and saw dozens and dozens of secret messaging apps. Apps where messages disappear, apps for hooking up with married women, apps that I never even knew existed, much less would have thought to look for when exploring his phone before. Now I know, when you need to play detective, you are definitely in the wrong relationship. Cold tingles of fear ran down my arms and legs. Who the hell is this person? I had feared that Jack might cheat on me in the future, but the new evidence pointed towards a reality that was far worse than I could have ever imagined. I double-checked that all the doors were locked, even though he had a key. 
I grabbed a kitchen knife to keep beside me on the nightstand, willed myself to shower, locked the bedroom door, and got into bed. I knew I needed to at least try to rest. I laid in bed alert, exhausted, and terrified until the sun and cold dawn breeze filtered in through the white curtains. At 6.30, I got out of bed and headed down to the kitchen. After making a French press of coffee, I took my first sip and began checking items off my list. My sisters were concerned for my safety, urging me to call the courthouse to see if I could get a restraining order. No. I began my search for a new home. I wanted to move out by the end of the week, so I emailed the landlord of my old apartment to see if there was any way I could move back in. Yes. I emailed my new landlord to see if there was any way I could get out of my current lease with Jack. No. Next, I texted Jack's ex-wife, letting her know that I feared for the well-being of her child, based on all the evidence that had recently come to light. After a couple of phone conversations and a series of text exchanges, she flushed out even more shocking and disturbing truths about Jack, including a history of drug abuse and financial exploitation. The worst part, he'd been trying to win his ex-wife back, suggesting on the day he and I moved in together that the two of them could raise our child together. I tried to warn you, she said, but I don't blame you. I didn't believe the crazy ex either. You're lucky you're finding this all out now. I didn't find any evidence until after I divorced him. Next, I met with my mentor on Skype. She confirmed my suspicion. He's not only a narcissist, he's a sociopath. Sociopaths feel no shame, remorse, or empathy. So literally no behavior is off limits for them. An hour later, the doorbell rang. Unlocking and pulling open the red front door, I welcomed the innocence of the day outside. The smell of freshly cut grass, daffodils splayed open, a bird singing. And then there was Michael standing on the welcome mat, smiling from his heart. A family lawyer whom I had known socially for several years, Michael had come to talk me through my options. I invited him in and led him to a seat at the kitchen table. It's good to see you, Sarah, Michael greeted. And I don't know exactly why we're meeting, but I assume the circumstances aren't good, given that you're pregnant. It's good to see you too. And you're right, it's not good. He pulled out a yellow legal pad and a silver pen from his briefcase and pushed his glasses higher up on his nose. Ready? I asked him. You bet, he answered. After I filled him in, Michael outlined my three options, abortion, adoption, and having the baby. I ruled out adoption. If I was going to birth the baby, I was going to mother it. Then he started walking me through abortion. Have you heard of quickening? He asked me. I shook my head. So Michael continued. It's when the baby's development really shifts around the middle of the second trimester and you can start to feel him moving inside of you, he explained. If you're going to terminate this pregnancy, You'll need to do it within the next week. If you wait any longer than that, it will be much harder on a number of levels. I was too far along to be able to still get an abortion at the women's clinic. I'm pretty sure you can still get an abortion at Planned Parenthood, but when you meet with your doctor tomorrow, she'll be able to tell you more. Then Michael talked me through having the baby. 
Even if you're not married and don't put Jack's name on the birth certificate, he still has 50% custody since he's the biological father, Michael explained. He talked me through different scenarios, going to court over the next several months to try for full custody. That would be an expensive and stressful process with no guarantees, he continued. Even if you did manage to get full custody, Jack could still come back at any time in the child's life up until he turns 18 to demand custody again. Should that happen, he then explained what it would be like to have Child Protection Services come into my home and inspect every nook and cranny of my life. Then he asked me the hardest questions I've ever been faced with. What would you do if your child looked like Jack and acted like him? What if he too had this character disorder? What if Jack turned the child against you? Are you prepared to stay in the state of Colorado to raise this child? He talked me through scenarios of a colicky baby, a baby with disabilities, a child with a challenging temperament, and asked me if I was ready to take that on in addition to co-parenting with Jack. What is most important to you in your life? What are your career goals? What kind of parent do you want to be? Will you really have the bandwidth to do your current work and take all of this on? What if you have a challenging birth, postpartum depression or anxiety? What kind of support system would you have? Why do you want to have a child? After sweating and squirming through answering his series of rapid fire questions about my deepest fears, weaknesses, values, and desires, I realized out loud, if I knew for sure that I could have a child later on, either on my own or with the right partner, then I would terminate this pregnancy. I'm going to be 40 in six months, and now I'm single. I have a healthy baby growing inside of me right now, I continued. It's my fear that I won't be able to get pregnant again and fulfill my dream of being a mother that is holding me back the most. But I don't want to make the biggest decision of my life from fear. As we neared the end of our two hours together, Michael took a sip of water and put his pen down. His eyes softened and he said, You know, Sarah, I don't think it's a coincidence that you reached out to me. Pausing to catch my gaze, he continued, I know Jack's personality type all too well. Many years ago, I also had a run-in with a sociopath. Mine was in a different context and ended up far worse than you, if you can believe it. But that's a a story I can share with you another time. For now, I want you to know that I really get how magnetic these men are. They're larger than life. And I understand what an expensive life lesson this is for you on a number of levels. I know what it's like to get in so deep with a person like this in such a short amount of time. They operate really quickly. It's quite a quagmire you're in after only knowing this person for eight months. I'm really sorry that this is happening. When we hugged goodbye, Michael advised me to sit with everything we had talked about. No matter what, he urged, you need to make this decision in the next day or two. Later that evening, he sent me this email. It was a privilege to share this moment in your life, and I hope you find the clarity to make the best choice. In reflecting a bit more on it this afternoon, I could not see or feel the right path forward. Oftentimes I can. What I do for a living involves helping people in highly conflicted situations find a path to settle the matter and move on. I often get a clear sense of the right path pretty early on, which the folks themselves sometimes can't see 
due to the overburden of emotion that surrounds the situation. But this is a picture with a bunch of lines at odd angles, presenting no clear image. And to wait for clarity, which is usually the right thing to do in such situations, is not really an option. As to do nothing and let nature take its course is itself a high consequence decision that will take over your life. So there may not be a clear and wonderful choice in any direction. You may just have to do the best you can in this odd situation and pick the best of several flawed answers. The recurring image I got this afternoon was that Jack is a man who will get some woman pregnant as an inevitable result of who he is, and that you happen to be an open boxcar on a long train of women stretching into the past and the future. This long train is his life. The takeaway for me was that you are carrying his child, the child he needs and perhaps not yours, which could be the reason why you can't feel the baby. So the central question is whether you want to give birth to his child or pass that role to another woman who will likely appear as the next boxcar in the train. These intuitions are just that. So take whatever benefits you and leave the rest. I hope this helps Sarah. Peace and blessings to you. The next morning, Tuesday, marked one week since I had seen Amanda's email. I met with my doctor to discuss my abortions option, abortion options. She too said I needed to act quickly. We can do it here, but it would be in the surgery center. Your insurance won't cover it, so it would cost about eight to $10,000, she said. But my colleague knows of a good clinic in Denver we often refer women to. It costs less there. I'll have her give you a call this afternoon. Also, if it helps, she added, since you don't need the father's permission to have an abortion in the state of Colorado, women in your position often tell their partners that they miscarried. Last, she asked, do you have a spiritual counselor in your life? I nodded. You're going to need one. Good luck. A few hours later, her colleague called with the contact information for the clinic in Denver. I called them and they walked me step-by-step step through what would be a two-day procedure. Their next opening wasn't until the following Monday afternoon and Tuesday morning. You're getting in right under the wire, the clinic receptionist said. Starting on Tuesday afternoon, you'd be in a whole new category with a higher risk of complications. I booked the appointment, once again knowing I could always cancel if I changed my mind. I headed to bed that night, relieved that I could take the next morning to rest and connect with my baby before I started preparing to move again. With my head propped up against a mound of pillows and my journal in my lap, I closed my eyes. Then, clarity. The rinse of relief when every part of me harmonizes and knows. The clarity I always wait for before making any big decision. The full body certainty that led me to move to Thailand, leave past relationships, become a yoga teacher. A warm, powerful peace surrounded me my son, greeting me for the first time. My son, he declared, Mom, I'm not supposed to be born. You're meant to terminate this pregnancy. I came into your life to teach you some big lessons. I love you. It's okay. His voice boomed down into my guts and through my bones. Tears began to roll down my face, as they do now writing these words just over a year later. Tears of relief. 
Tears of gratitude for being in the presence of such a great being. Tears for my and my son's fate. Tears for ignoring red flags. Tears for meeting Jack, for getting pregnant, for not getting an abortion sooner. Tears for the tragedy I felt my life had become. Tears for the knowing that things can never be other than exactly as they are. Tears calling me to trust the perfection of it all. On my nightstand sat the small painting of Mother Mary that I received for my first communion and I've kept, kept close by ever since. The lesson of the mother goddess that the shaman had pointed me toward several weeks prior started to crystallize. From the strength that only a mother's love holds, it was time to break my own heart and end my son's life. I invited my son to stay with me in spirit and come back in a way that was best for him, whether that was to his father, through another woman, to me at a time when we could have a happy life together, or to another family. As I cried myself to sleep, I set my son free, knowing that he didn't need it. He was already freedom itself. A couple days later, I moved back into my old apartment. The following Monday, I headed to Denver for day one of the abortion process. The clinic was indistinct, tucked into a corner on the second floor of an office building. Inside were only women. Each exuded professionalism, compassion, and non-judgment. The most trusted and well-known clinic in Colorado for second trimester abortions my doctor said they treated an average of five to 20 women each week. She inserted laminaria, a thin strip of seaweed into my cervix to relax and widen it, an uncomfortable procedure similar to a pap smear that lasted about half an hour. Then she instructed me to go home and rest with a hot water bottle on my womb. She gave me pain pills that would also help me sleep and talked me through all possible complications, which included hemorrhaging and going into labor. Then I headed to my sister's house nearby in case I needed to return to their hospital in the middle of the night. I consciously dissociated that evening. I neither looked at my reflection in the mirror nor down at my belly. I didn't try to connect with my son. I knew my sanity rested on my ability to stay focused on each step, one step at a time. My sister and I ate my last pregnancy meal together Thai green curry and chocolate ice cream. And miraculously, I slept through the night. When I woke up the next morning, the sweet powdery smell of lilacs, which rested in a mason jar on the windowsill, wafted into my sister's guest room. Birds sang me awake to a sunny morning. I felt my son was already gone, already a part of the lilacs, the bird song, the light. Now, every time a bird visits me, I know it's him. My heart swelled with joy in feeling his release and in realizing that I had made it safely through the night. About an hour later, my sister drove me to the clinic. My friend Cleo, who offered to serve as my abortion doula by supporting me in the room during the procedure, met us there. My mom had also flown in that morning from Chicago and was on her way from the airport. During the DNC, Cleo stood beside me, holding my hand and stroking my head, telling me what a good job I was doing. I was under medication while the doctor and nurses worked quickly and gently. There were no complications, a relief for us all. I spent the next couple of days resting at home, 
My mom was there to help, and girlfriends came by each day to visit and bring food. The evening that I said goodbye to my mom, I stood at my bathroom sink, about to brush my teeth. I felt the empty space inside where my son no longer was and where my organs hadn't yet re-inhabited. Behind me, I saw my son being sucked down a black spiral into an abyss. Up until then, I'd felt sadness, but mostly relief. In an instant, the wild hand of grief whacked me behind my heart, pummeling me to the floor. With my cheek pressed to the bathroom rug, fists beating the linoleum, I sobbed and screamed into my eerily empty apartment. My baby, my baby, where is my baby? An occurrence that would happen many times over the next months. When that first wave, wave of grief abated a bit, I crawled to my bedroom like a wild, wounded animal and called my friend Kate. The pain was unbearable, far too big for me. Kate stayed quiet on the other end of the line as I howled myself into hyperventilation. Breathe, Sarah, she instructed. Please just try to take a breath. Okay, good. Keep breathing. Deep breaths. Sarah, this is going to be a really hard journey. She acknowledged. It's going to take time. If it means anything, I would have done the same thing. I am here. Throughout my entire decision-making process, my family and close friends gave me space to come to my own truth. They knew that no one could make that decision but me. And when I finally did reach clarity, they all affirmed that they thought I was doing the right thing. Not one of them questioned me or tried to talk me out of it. They knew I'd need to make it through the short-term pain for at least the next year in order to have a chance at long-term happiness. Over the next couple of weeks, I rode the roller coaster of the baby blues, faced the physical pain and emotional horror of my breasts swelling with milk, and began the long road of healing that continues to this day. I had many layers of loss to work through, the loss of my baby, the fact that I chose that loss, the loss of a partner, the loss of being a stepmother to his child, the loss of my vision for the future, the loss of my innocence and the loss of my former self. In addition, I was managing the nearly paralyzing fear that I wouldn't be able to conceive again while also processing another massive betrayal and how I could let that happen again when I had been so determined not to. Before the abortion, I thought that at some level I'd be able to go back to being who I was before I got pregnant. Now, when I look back at my old self, I see a girl Everything about me, even my body, is irrevocably changed. I passed through a particularly dark time last summer when I didn't want to keep living. I was depressed, exhausted beyond measure, and in over my head in every area of my life. The challenges wouldn't stop coming. If life is this hard, what's the point in even living it? How many hits can one person take before giving up? When I started thinking thoughts like that, I knew I needed to get even more support. I needed to talk to someone specifically trained in post-abortion counseling. So I returned to Skylar's office at the Women's Health Clinic. When I sat down in the chair across from her, I said, I just need to tell you my story. I need to say it out loud so I can start to try and understand what the hell just happened. 
There's no right or wrong way to do this, she encouraged. At the end of my story, she asked, have you wailed? Have you raged? Have you been fantasizing about your baby? When I answered yes to all of these things, Skylar replied, that's really good. You're doing a really good job. A lot of women who come here just stuff their experiences. They're afraid to feel it all, so they keep themselves busy by jumping right back into their work and their relationships. The problem with that is that it all comes back to them later on. I know it doesn't feel like it, but you're in a good place. The more you can allow yourself to think all the thoughts and feel all the feelings, the more you are allowing yourself to heal. You understand your decision intellectually, and now you're in the long process of making peace with your decision by letting the other parts of you catch up. I had my abortion 20 years ago, she continued, and I just shared my story publicly for the first time at a conference last month. Each year, I learn more about myself and the experience. Over time, you'll find that this decision, more than anything else in your life, will define who you are. While the pain of losing my son will never go away, I am now at peace with my decision. I feel relief in the path I chose and have faith that every day I'm moving closer to the light at the end of this very long, very dark tunnel. The day after my abortion, I emailed Jack to tell him. Since my life had been ripped apart by lies, I wanted to tell him the truth. After he called me names, ridiculed me for giving our son the final say in his fate, and placed all the blame in my lap, I blocked him from my life and have had no contact with him since. I considered sharing my story publicly one day, most likely in a memoir some years down the road, but in the meantime, since tens of thousands of people around the world still thought I was pregnant, I wanted to save myself the pain of countless individual encounters. I needed to make a public statement. I announced that there were complications with my pregnancy and I lost my baby, which was vague and honest, affording me the privacy I needed to heal. I never once said that I had a miscarriage, though that is what everyone naturally assumed. If you are one of the people that my family and friends shared this with, please do not fault them. They were acting on my wishes and protecting me so that I could heal. They knew that this was my story to tell when and if I was ready. If you are one of the friends I told this to, please know that I was not ready to share the full picture. Telling such a complex story over and over again while taking others' reactions into account would have been far too much for me. I often regretted announcing my pregnancy publicly, yet I know that if I hadn't, Amanda wouldn't have reached out and who knows where I'd be right now. I also want to express that I'm putting myself at risk by sharing some of my experiences with these two men, yet my story would be incomplete without at least this thumbnail sketch of those relationships. Remaining silent out of fear would only perpetuate the problem. I'm not sharing the story to prove or defend myself. I don't want to debate, answer questions, or receive advice or opinions. At the end of this episode, I'll share some constructive ways in which I do want to connect around all of this. If you are one of the women involved with either of these men, please do not contact me. I've moved on with my life and will no longer discuss my past. Going forward, I will only refer to this story in service of helping women in similar situations. I'm sharing this because healing from my abortion has been the hardest, 
most profound experience of my life, and I'm definitely still in it. I feel a great urgency to share this now, given that a woman's right to choose is in jeopardy here in the U.S. Prior to this issue being front and center in today's headlines, last July, as I looked out from my healing cocoon at all the beautiful work that's flourishing in the field of women's empowerment, I noticed a big black hole. No one is talking about abortion, not a single one of us. Yet each year, 75% of the women who attend my retreats share via confidential applications that they're still carrying unresolved trauma from abortions they had five, 10, 20, 30 years ago. One in three women in the United States and the United Kingdom will have at least one abortion by the age of 45. Worldwide, nearly 60 million abortions occur annually, and 25 million of these are performed under unsafe circumstances. I knew I needed to share my story in service of helping to heal this enormous wound that the collective feminine is silently carrying. I vowed to give myself a full year to mourn. After that, I would speak out. In the several months since then, as I watched the emergence of the Me Too and Time's Up movements, I knew that my vision fit into something much larger that we're all a part of. My lifelong commitment is to use my experiences and gifts to empower women and uplift the feminine. After all I've learned this past year, I'd be out of integrity if I didn't use my position, platform, and newly claimed wisdom and empathy to help transform our relationship to abortion. I am blessed to live in a state with progressive abortion laws, to have had the financial resources to obtain an abortion, and to have received the full support of my friends and family. I had access to what most women do not, quality support before, during, and after my abortion. Still, recovering from my abortion was confusing and isolating. While I received compassionate care, it was very bare bones. I was sent home with a printed handout that listed basic instructions, wear pad and pads until the bleeding stops, rest the first couple days, avoid abdominal exercises, call the hotline if you need to. This wasn't enough. I needed concrete information about natural ways to balance my hormones, rebuild my body from the ravages of grief, heal my womb, and release the deep pain and trauma that my abortion scarred me with. I also wanted to learn rituals to honor my son's passing and the death of the person I once was. I wanted to hear stories of women who'd been through something similar, but I couldn't find them anywhere. So I found and still find myself in a strange no woman's land. Books about abortion don't quite fit, nor do books about miscarriage or stillbirth. I, along with many others, are in the taboo in-between place of later-term abortions that no one dares speak about. Doing so could cost a woman her reputation, even her life. While solitude is essential for one's heroine's journey, and I value my time alone, I also longed for more connection and community. I wanted to sit in a sacred circle with others who knew what I was going through. I wanted to engage in integrated practices to heal, both alone and together. I pieced together a recovery strategy by seeking out experts in myriad fields, coupled with my own knowledge that has come from 20 years of study and practice in the fields of yoga, meditation, and psychology. Nonetheless, I struggled enormously. And that level of struggle simply isn't necessary. Now the tremendous 
progress we've made on access to abortion is at risk. And still, the cycle of legitimacy is incomplete without this aftercare support network and process. To really make abortion a legitimate choice for women and for us to be able to own the destiny of our bodies and lives, we need and deserve the kind of support all difficult life experiences require. For example, cancer, addiction, and divorce have myriad support groups, books, and resources. Abortion is still in the shadows and women are suffering as a result. Recovering from an abortion is complicated and the current resources available are grossly inadequate. A doctor doesn't even ask to see a woman several weeks after an abortion to see how her body is recovering and how she's even doing. She's left completely on her own. As women, we love telling one another about the cool new lip gloss we discovered or how to make an amazing Instapot stew, but what would happen if we finally started talking to one another about our abortions, not in the dark, but out in broad daylight? Women's postpartum care has historically been ignored. Luckily, that's shifting. When a woman has a baby, she now has more and more resources educating her and her loved ones in the long-term boons of getting adequate rest, nutrition, and support during those precious first 40 days. When a woman miscarries or has a stillbirth, she still suffers tremendously in the shadows, but she can be more open about her loss and therefore be cared for by her partner if she has one, friends, neighbors, and community. But what about when a woman has an abortion? Afraid of being judged and condemned, many of these women don't even tell their friends and family. This secrecy generally isn't a problem for the many women who feel immediate peace and relief after their abortions, but it is for the many others who feel profound anguish and regret. The reality is most experience something in between. Few women can walk away from the experience without some level of emotional dis-ease. If those women who struggle after their, after their abortions don't have access to the resources they need, unresolved feelings of guilt, shame, sadness, and depression may not surface until months or more often years later. From the outside, they seem to go on to lead normal lives. Over time, their unresolved wounds fester, negatively impacting everything. When ignored, these feelings can contribute to self-destructive and addictive behaviors, unstable relationships, depression, anxiety, and low self-esteem. Some women also harbor post-abortion syndrome, a form of post-traumatic stress disorder. In the voicelessness that results from keeping these secrets, women then endure these long-lasting effects in isolation. As recent epigenetic research shows us, if we don't heal trauma ourselves, we pass it on to our children in our DNA, and the chain of pain continues. We can do so much better than this. Our first step is to replace shame and secrecy with empathy and sharing. Shame researcher and best-selling author Brene Brown teaches that shame cannot survive in the light of sharing and empathy. Shame, she also says, is highly correlated with repression and violence. All three of these things characterize the current abortion climate. When we relegate abortion solely to the religious and political spheres, we ignore it because the whole topic just feels too scary and controversial. We bury our heads in the sand and ignore the tens of millions of women who need our help. Abortion is our great equalizer. It's an initiation experienced by women of all ages, income brackets, religions, and ethnicities. Our grandmothers faced abortions. Our mothers faced abortions. Our daughters and granddaughters will too. 
Abortion is one of the most important rites of passage a woman will ever go through. It points to a power, a spiritual power that only women possess, the power to grow new life, the power to connect with the the souls of our unborn children, and the power to know what is most loving for them and for us. Yet, since abortion is so taboo, we have no societal structures to support women through these life and death initiations. Because there's so much social stigma around abortion, those of us who have had them feel excluded from support groups for grief, bereavement, and baby loss. On top of this, we're excluded from conversations, even amongst women, about maternal health, baby loss, and postpartum care. There are only a couple of quality books about post-abortion recovery, compared to countless books for women who had suffered miscarriage, stillbirth, and sudden infant death syndrome. Why? There's a silent, all-pervasive, and sometimes unconscious discrimination against women who've had abortions. We're immediately othered and put into a separate box from the rest of the world. Over the past year, I've experienced this firsthand. The isolation that results is an antiquated tool of the patriarchy used to disempower women. It's time to dismantle this, giving women who've had abortions both a network to connect with one another and a more visible, vocal, respected place in society. Effective post-abortion healing requires a visible, widely available, and affordable, as in no cost or donation-based, global support network. Similar to the accessibility and all-inclusivity of 12-step programs, this network needs to combine sisterhood, integrated healing modalities that blend ancient wisdom with modern science to address all dimensions of a woman's being, physical, emotion, emotional, psychological, and spiritual, and empathic, non-judgmental environments. Sharing our stories within these redemptive circles will allow us to transform pain into power, shame into self-worth, and sadness into joy. We'll be able to grow stronger, not weaker, because of our challenges. We'll go on to be greater assets to our communities through accessing new levels of authenticity and empowerment. In order for us to actualize this vision, we must first implore the world to face this truth. Abortion happens. It has always happened. It will always happen, regardless of where it stands politically and legally. A woman cannot step into her wholeness and strength if she hasn't made peace with her past, and neither can the feminine at large. We know the feminine is rising, but she cannot fully soar if we do not heal this global wound that afflicts at least 30% of women. Abortion is a major women's health crisis that we aren't dealing with. We'll only rise when all of us rise with the courage and fierce compassion of awake women, with the critical mass of a global sisterhood united. I know it's scary. I know it feels dangerous. I know how hard it is to think outside the prevailing context, but we have to. The women on whose shoulders we stand prepared us for this moment. They're whispering in our ears. This is a woman's work. You have the power to change this. We need to question our relationship with authority by remembering our real authority, the loving truth that breathes us and beats our hearts. Healing requires a paradigm shift from fear to love. We must slough off our sleepiness, victimization, cynicism, and resignation. We need to wake up out of the trance that we don't have the power to create a new reality for ourselves. We're the ones who can give our world the medicine it truly needs, love, respect, support, and empathy. If not now, when? 
If not us, then who? Sisters, we are the ones we've been waiting for. We're ready for this. We can do this. We need to do this. Not next month, not next year, now. Let's come together to birth a world where women everywhere can flourish in health, wholeness, and redemption during all seasons of life, even after their abortions. And this movement requires your participation. To join this movement, please move with me through this five-part ritual. Number one, share your story with the hashtag, I had an abortion. As I once heard Marion Williamson say, you can shoot a soloist, but you can't shoot a song. This is the era of we. Our voices raised together in love can lead to systemic changes. We need to see the names and faces of women we can relate to coming forward about their abortions to know that we're not alone. Please ignite your courage and speak your truth. Share your story in a way that feels authentic to you. The more of us that speak up, the stronger we will be together and the more we can show the world just how normal and common abortion actually is. This is a reckoning, our reckoning. May our vows of silence end here and now. Number two, share this podcast episode. Pass it on to friends, family, or those who need to hear it. Knowledge is the precursor to change. Number three, light a candle for every child you've lost through abortion. If you had, haven't had an abortion, light a candle for the women who've died because they didn't have access to safe abortions or those who lost their lives defending a woman's right to choose. Number four, you can also sign up to be notified when I open registration for the online course Redemption. I'm creating this to help women at any stage after an abortion to return to wholeness physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. With the help of your participation and feedback, this will later serve as the prototype for future in-person circles led by trained facilitators around the world. You can find that sign up on my website, thewayofthehappywoman.com, and look for the blog post, I Had an Abortion. You can also look at the link in the description of this episode. Number five, donate to Redemption Circle, the 501c3 I founded to build this vision. The website for that is patreon.com forward slash redemption circle. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash redemption circle. Redemption Circle is a global movement and 501c3 to heal the stigma of abortion and create a support network that empowers women to claim wholeness physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually after an abortion. In addition to donors to create this, I'm also looking for individuals who want to facilitate redemption circles in their communities around the world, serve on the board of directors, and also train to be post-abortion doulas. To learn more and to donate, visit patreon.com forward slash redemption circle. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. taught, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Sisters, this matters. Today, our collective silence must end. Stand with me. Let's join hands in this redemption circle. 
Doing this will heal the women who came before us and those who will come after us. My son's name is Zane. It means God's gracious gift. Zane guided me to share my story and to create Redemption Circle. He's not only my son, but also my greatest teacher. Without him, I never would have had the courage to do this. This is Zane's legacy. This is our truth and redemption. Now it's your turn. Join me at the Redemption Circle Patreon page. This is the place with your help, your enthusiasm, your support that will allow me to start to grow this vision with an army of many others. I'll see you over at patreon.com Redemption Circle. Much love and God bless you.